Christmas is called the most wonderful time of the year, right? And we try to portray that in media, and it's, it's in the songs, and it's on the radio, and, and we really like to be joyful, and it's, and it's awesome. And yet, oftentimes, it is this season that people feel pretty hopeless. Some are despairing. Sometimes you feel so bad, and, and it's like the idea of color ever returning to your life. Probably not going to happen. You're just seeing things in black and white, and you're living in the gray. Friends, uh, I think we've all been there, where life is hard and it is difficult, and you might feel like you're despairing. Just kind of looking around, I know some of your stories. Some of you are in a very difficult situation right now, and you don't see where there's any hope, or you feel very unworthy. And not only do you look at it in your personal lives, but if you take a step back and start processing all that's taking place in our world, just the upheaval, I mean, look at we got Islamic terrorism, and we've got nations that are spinning out of control, and we've got this divorce rate, and we've got death, and we've got people being killed and enslaved, and I mean, it's problematic. We've got poverty. We have a national debt that has so many zeros that we can't even count them, okay? Someday that is going to come upon us, and you start thinking about that, and you're like, whoa, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my kids? What kind of world will my kids and my grandkids live in? And it begins to, you begin to think like, whoa, there is absolutely no hope. And maybe you've heard from some Christian somewhere that, you know, God offers hope and you can find it in the Bible and you can read all about it. Just start in the New Testament. He'll tell you about the hope that's found. And maybe you are despairing. You're like, oh, you know, all right, maybe I'll take that Christian up. And I'll, I'll open the Bible. I'll start in the New Testament and I'll see what kind of hope God is offering me. And so you find the New Testament, and you open the Gospel of Matthew, like, all right, I'm going to read the Bible. Okay, that's going to change me forever. And you're like, what's going on here? Record of genealogy, and you can't pronounce half of the names. You have no idea who any of these people are. And you're like, this ain't helping, okay? There's nothing good here. This doesn't do it for me. I'm not sure what it does for these Christians here, but this does nothing for me. And you might think that when you come to the genealogy of Jesus. It starts here in Matthew chapter 1, but... Well, let me tell you, if you look at it a little closer, you might have a far different experience. Uh, years ago, when I was in sixth grade, I got an opportunity to go and take some biology classes. And um, we got to even go off campus, and they made it a big deal. And I remember this guy up there, he was like, okay, we're going to take pond water. And he had this like little jar of pond water, and we're going to study this and look at it. And you're sitting there in sixth grade, you're like, this is ridiculous. I mean, come on, pond water, there's nothing to it, right? And he said, we're going to put a little drop on your slide. You put the cover and you put it in underneath the microscope. And let's see what can be seen, right? So, of course, everybody's like, this is crazy. It's silly. There's nothing in pond water, right? This guy, why are we even going to school, right? And then you, you put that slide underneath the microscope and you look and you're like, oh, whoa. You see all these like little animals and they're attacking each other. And it's, it's crazy. You've seen things that are in no sci-fi movie I mean, you see protozoa and algae, and you see these anthropods, and they're going after them, and they're really weird-looking, and they're all moving around, and you're like, whoa, who would have ever known in just a drop of water there could be all this craziness going on? Well, I'll tell you, when you come to the genealogy of Jesus, at first glance, you might like, ugh, boring, but we're going to take a few minutes and put it under the microscope. Does the New Testament really begin with hope for humanity? Well, let's take a look at this genealogy 
and let's find out. First of all, I want to say that the genealogy of Jesus demonstrates the greatness of God's sovereignty. You need to understand that God moves history forward in an orderly and purposeful way. And genealogies, though you may not find them very important, were incredibly important in biblical times. In fact, a man's status was all traced back to his genealogy. Uh, like, for instance, if you had been exiled into Babylon and when you returned, you couldn't serve as a priest unless you could prove it through your genealogy. Uh, to kind of give you perspective, a genealogy was important uh, to a Jewish person as your passport is to you when you're traveling in another country. Hopefully you've not had this experience, but if you lose your passport and you're someplace that they think you shouldn't be, life gets difficult. Or if you lose your social security card and you just can't find it anywhere, well, all of a sudden, you're in a precarious situation. The, to be caught without a genealogy would be a, a similar experience. You, you lost your status. I mean, it, everything is so important to genealogy. I mean, your ability to inherit land, um, to receive benefits, and your heritage is all traced back to your genealogy. And you really think that the last place you'd ever find hope would be in a genealogy. But when we come to the genealogies, what, it, what God is trying to tell us is that individuals are important to him. In fact, he knows their name. Every person is important. Now, uh, in our family, we have a tradition every Christmas morning. Um, I read the Christmas story, and the kids act it out with these like little Playmobil sets. Even though they're big now, they still do it, and they've added some things that I'm pretty sure are not in the biblical text, but whatever, we roll with it, you know, and they're kind of doing their thing. Um, I'm pretty sure in all the years, I, I've never actually read the genealogy before we got to the Christmas story beginning in Matthew 1.18. I, 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 I seem to recall that I think I tried it once, and Trina said, this isn't working. You know, why, why are my four-year-olds, you know, why do they bother to this and they're bored? We skip over it. But actually, to skip over it is to miss how God is working in human history. Really, the genealogies of Jesus are a chronicle of God's grace. There are actually two genealogies of Jesus that are found in the New Testament. One, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, it traces that Jesus is in the line of King David, and it gives his legal right to reign. It shows his human heredity and that he is in the line of David. He has the legal right to reign. And you see that from Joseph, his earthly father. In Luke, you find in uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38, you have another genealogy of Jesus. And this traces uh, Jesus' heredity through Mary. And it shows that on Mary's side, that Jesus actually has royal blood. So even though he has a heavenly father, he does not have an earthly father, he does have an earthly mother. He is fully God and fully man. And on his mother's side, he has royal blood, the bloodline of David. And you'll see that. You see that in verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see that son of David that's so critically important. You see, God made about a thousand years prior to the coming of Christ a covenant, a promise to David. You remember King David? And this was the promise. Let me just give you an excerpt. You can find it in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning like in verse 16. He told David, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me 
forever. When does forever end? It doesn't. And then he goes on to say, your throne shall be established forever. So God made a promise with David that you are going to have a son that will reign forever. And this is huge. This is key to the Messiah. There's one from the line of David. He will be a king and he will reign forever. Now, that means that if you are going to be a claimant to the king of, to be the king of Israel, that you've got to be able to prove it. You can't just show up and say, you know those promises about the coming king and Messiah? Hey, that's me. The people would say, prove it. How do you prove it? You have to prove it through the genealogy. You show us the record how you are in line. You can't prove it through your genealogy. You're a fraud. You can't be it. And so they find here in Matthew chapter 1, it begins with the genealogy. It shows that Jesus has the human heredity to be the king. Fascinating in the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in verse 18, you have the divine heredity. You show that both Jesus is both fully man in the line of King David, and he is also fully God, and that he has divine origins, that he is the God-man, fully God and fully man, the one who's existed from all eternity and yet who has entered into humanity. And really, all of Jewish history keeps preparing the way for the birth of this one who's the Messiah. And when you trace the royal line, what you're really doing is you're seeing God's dealings with his people. You see how God is sovereignly working, arranging marriages that like there's just no way this could happen. And yet it does. And, and children come from this marriage. And it's like, how is this even possible? And you want to understand how important genealogies are. Uh, do you remember a couple by the name of Mary and Joseph? Okay, a few of you kids do? Okay, everybody else, listen up. Okay, with the kids, Mary and Joseph. And, and they're making their way somewhere, right? Around Christmas? Okay, any of these songs sound familiar? Does anybody know where Mary and Joseph are traveling to? Oh, there we go. Yeah, Bethlehem. Okay, we're going to do 24-7 Christmas songs. Okay, so we're like getting some of this truth in here. Okay, they are traveling to Bethlehem. Why? Why in the world are they traveling to Bethlehem? Mary's nine months pregnant. Why are they traveling to Bethlehem? Is it like a resort area? Do they have some hot springs? What, what's going on? Does anybody know why they're going to Bethlehem? It's a census. But why, why Bethlehem? Because, she, because Mary and Joseph... Joseph is from the family of David. Bethlehem is the city of David, right? Do you see how important genealogies were in biblical times? And here's something that's, that's fascinating. When the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem in AD 70, all the biblical, all the records of ancestry were completely destroyed. You see, Jesus Christ is the last verifiable claimant to the throne of David. There is no Jewish person, person that can trace their ancestry back to the time of Christ. Why? Because all the records were destroyed and the temple when it was destroyed. I find that to be fascinating and interesting, but it is highly significant that Jesus is the last verifiable claimant to the throne of David. You see, when you look at the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, it shows that it demonstrates the greatness of God's sovereignty. Let me tell you something else the genealogy does. 
It displays the depth of God's grace. Let me tell you this. God uses flawed humans to carry out his history and to move history forward. He always uses flawed humans. Now, when you, we're going to kind of walk through some of these names here. And we're going to discover that far from these just people just being like super pious and close to perfect, this could be like the roll call for like a federal prison. The, uh, I want you to know the Bible paints it and shows it the way it is. We like to have the sanitized version of the Bible. I'm like, of course, everybody's pretty close to perfect if they're going to be in the line of Jesus. Well, let's throw it under the microscope and see what we're going to see. You see, seeing the hand of God moving in history gives us the hope of God for today. And that's what we need. So let's look at it. Verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. That word, and your, your Bible might say Jesus the Christ, Christos. Greek word for Messiah, and that word Messiah means anointed one. Jesus Christ means the anointed one. Jesus Messiah, he's the anointed one. That means that when they anointed people for two things, it indicated God's choice, but it also represented God's empowerment. And so the people of Israel, they traditionally anointed for three different offices. Prophet, if you're a prophet, you're anointed. A priest, you're anointed, showing God's choice and empowerment. Or a king, if you are the king, you are anointed with oil, showing God's choice and, and showing that God was going to empower and so when you come to the genealogy of Jesus, Jesus is actually all three, prophet, priest, and king. But in the Gospel of Matthew, what Matthew is highlighting specifically is his role as in the line of David, David the king, who would have an eternal son. And so we find that Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. And so beginning in verse 2, you have... He starts tracing it all the way back to Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. When you see the son of or the, uh, what it's actually saying is that this is a direct ancestor. When you go through all of these names, they're in groups of 14, there are omissions. Some minor characters are omitted. But how they saw ancestry is that you could, even if it was your great-great-grandfather, they would refer to you as the son of. Okay, so some of the more less like minor characters may be skipped over, but you had this direct line. And so you're seeing this, and the very first person who begins with is Abraham. Anybody know why Abraham is so significant? He is the father of faith, right? And so what God did, Abraham lived in a very pagan world, Ur of the Chaldeans, and he's a very pagan person, and God says, I am going to do my work through you. And he literally calls Abraham to leave all this wickedness and calls him to himself. And he goes on a very long journey and he ends up in Israel, okay? This, this land that would be one day referred to as the promised land where all these significant events are going to take place. And he is called the father of faith and God makes a very significant promise to Abraham. Does anybody happen to know what it's called? It's called the Abrahamic Covenant. And you, you probably want to put a little mark in your Bible at Genesis 12, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It is so significant because God makes this promise. And in this promise, he says this in verse 3, And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Huge problem. 
Abraham and Sarah don't have any kids. That doesn't going to stop God. He says, I'm going to bless you through you. All the families, every family will be blessed through you. It's the Abrahamic covenant. Just to reinforce it, Genesis 17, verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you, listen to this, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And so it begins with Abraham, the father of faith. But although we have this version of Father Abraham, and he must have been just a really awesome guy and really perfect, actually, Abraham had his moments. He had several what we could call for Pinocchio moment, right? I mean, he told some wise, they're like, you've got to be kidding. And of course, they're right there in the Bible. I mean, and he passed on kind of a legacy of lying. You see that kind of carried out through his family line there. But man, he told some whoppers. And so what? He's still in the genealogy of Jesus. In fact, he's the one that begins with here in Matthew. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac comes off pretty good in the book of Genesis. There's not a lot of bad things to say about this guy, but... Um, he uh, had some sons here. Isaac, the father of, had Jacob, the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, okay? Now, Jacob, whew, uh, do you know what his name is? Means His name means cheater or supplanter, okay? I don't know why you'd name your kid that, but they did, and they named him, and he kind of lived up to the reputation, man. He was he was slicker than like a Las Vegas card shark at different times. He's wheeling and dealing and making deals with his brother. And this is, this is all part of the family line of Jesus. And then, but do you see this? And Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Just the mention of Judah and his brothers brings to mind what Judah and his brothers did. You remember what they did? They sold their brother, Joseph, into slavery. Remember that? And Judah... Eventually, Joseph uh, entered into prison. I mean, it went from bad to worse. But eventually, through God's sovereign work, he ends up being the number two man in the, in the Egyptian empire. But they're listed here, this Judah. And so we're moving on, and these genealogies are working just the way we'd expect them. And you come to verse 3, and Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Whoa! Okay. I, I noticed that you guys didn't even flinch. But did you see that? Like... If you ever read uh, genealogies, um, the Israelites never put females in a genealogy. It was really just about the male line. But here, we're only in verse 3, and we've got um, this woman, uh, Tamar. In fact, as you go through the genealogies, you're going to find that there are four women. They're, they're outcast women, but they stand out as like trophies of God's grace. Um, I mean, they... They kind of illustrate just the depth of depravity, not just these women, but these men. And let's take a look. You're going to find that there's some knots in the family tree of Jesus. And Hebrews would typically exclude women in the genealogies, but we're going to find them. And the first one we encounter is Tamar. Well, you're probably, if you're just kind of reading there, Judah was, oh, you had a wife, huh? Uh, Tamar, and they had some kids, Perez and Zerah. Well... Actually not. That's not, well, they had some kids, but Tamar was not Judah's wife. Probably the most, I'd say, fair to say, the most difficult chapter, one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible is Genesis 38, where all of this comes into play. Uh, let me just give you a little of the background here. Uh, it'll become clear why we said if you want your kids to go to kids' church, it'll be a good Sunday for it. 
because we're going to talk about Genesis 38. Um, it's really a story of incest, prostitution, and deception. You see, Judah had, uh, Hannah's wife had some boys, and they, this first boy they named Er. Can we just make it an agreement? Never call your kid Er, okay? I'm going to always try to talk you out of it. And uh, Er seriously erred. We don't know exactly what he did, but his behavior and his heart was, it was wicked, and God brought judgment, literally had him killed. He, he died. God put him to death. And Er was married to this woman, Tamar. And as it says uh, in, the, in the Jewish law, that what was to happen is the next son, when he became of age, was to marry this woman and to have offspring through her for her, her, his brother's line, not his. And so there was this second son. His name was Onan. And, and so he had to marry Tamar and because... And what he did, and it's in all the graphic, gory detail, and I'm not going to read it to you, but he was playing games with God and with Tamar. And it was wicked in God's sight. And he would not father a child for his brother, Tamar. And God put him to death. By the way, if you think that like God doesn't know the attitudes of your heart and, and your behavior, and that he doesn't really care, you are mistaken he is a God, a God of love, but he does bring judgment. In this case, he actually put Onan to death for his wickedness. And he spells it out. You can read it in Genesis 38 if you want to. And so uh, Judah's kind of processing here, man. Whoa, this Tamar girl, she is not good for my boys, all right? But Judah has another son, uh, Shelah is by the, his name, and, and Tamar's waiting. She knows that Shelah is supposed to then uh, actually then marry her, and a child would come through him and for her first husband to be in that line. Well, Judah's like, that ain't happening. And so Tamar takes matters into her own hands. Always very dangerous. I'll make this work. And you can read about it. Judah's wife dies. Tamar's like, what's up with this? Shelah's of age. All right, I'm going to take it in my own hands. Finds out that her father-in-law is going to go chase some sheep around. And so she goes in that area and stands by the city, and she dresses like a prostitute. And uh, Judah comes by, and he sees this woman dressed as a prostitute. Her face is covered. It happens to be his daughter-in-law. He propositions her, and they have this sinful act of fornication. That's written right there in the Bible. And from this one act of evil... From harlotry and incest, guess what? Tamar is pregnant. In fact, she has pregnant with twins, Perez and Zerah. And Perez, who is the firstborn, carries on the messianic line. Does that not shock you? Is that not shocking? Right there, verse 3. And yet, uh, through this product of incest and harlotry and fornication and deception... You know why this is written and why God brought history to bear like this is to demonstrate that he's a God of grace. You see that? I mean, I, if I was in charge, I would have picked Joseph by far, man. Joseph is awesome. No, 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 no. God says, I'm going to work through the wickedness and evil of people to demonstrate that I'm a God of grace. And so we see Perez and Zerah. We got the full story now by Tamar. 
And Perez was the father of Hezron, verse 3. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amadadab. And Amadadab, the father of Nishon. And Nishon, the father of Salmon. And we're just kind of rolling along here. Things are going pretty well. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Whoa! Wait a second. Verse 5. Ray. Ooh, here's the next woman that Matthew mentions, Rahab. If you ever read your Bibles, probably ran across her. How is Rahab described? Four different times. Rahab the... Oh, some of you have actually read. Uh, Notice how quietly you say that. Rahab the harlot. It's Rahab the harlot. What in the world is she doing in the line of Jesus? This is really bad. This looks bad, doesn't it? Rahab, what is she doing in there? Boaz by Rahab. You remember the situation. Well, first of all, Rahab is a Canaanite. When God is bringing his people to the promised land, before they cross the Jordan, they've got to go through Jericho. It is a citadel. It is the fortress. And if you're going to enter into the promised land, where all the Canaanites are running around wild, you have got to go through Jericho. And so what they do, Israel sends a couple of their spies, and they go to Jericho, and they're all spying it out. And lo and behold, they run into this woman Rahab the harlot. Now, we don't know if she's still practicing her trade or what, but they run into her, and she offers to give them shelter and protection. But she says, we know who you are, and we know the God whom you serve, and that he is the one true God. And she begs for protection, and she asks, will you preserve me and my family? And so they make this agreement that she's going to put this red cord, and it's going to be kind of right there by her window, and so that when Israel comes and she believes and knows that they will win and overthrow Jericho, that whoever's in my house will be protected by you. I protect you, you protect me and my family. And exactly how she said it, so it played out. And she is protected. And not only that, But she obviously becomes a true believer in the one true God. And she actually becomes part of the Messianic line. Do you you see that in verse 5? Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Do you see that? She becomes the great-great-grandmother of David. Rahab, the harlot. Do you know, like in Hebrews 11, where they have the hall of faith, like all these men and women that are like just demonstrate a radical, awesome faith? Do you know who's in there? Rahab. And she's actually referred to as Rahab the harlot. And she's in the hall of faith. And she obviously is a godly woman. I'll tell you what. I don't know what you've done in your life. But do you see the power of God's grace? If he can work through these individuals, flawed as they are, and bring salvation, hope, grace, and forgiveness, can he not work in you? Well, then we keep reading here. We're in verse 5. We're like, well, maybe we're done with the, the women here. This is just so atypical. And Boaz was the father of Obed by, oh my, another. What's going on? This, I thought this was a genealogy, a Hebrew genealogy. Obed by Ruth. Here's Ruth. Okay. Do you see that, like, so you got these Gentiles? Ruth, does anybody know that what Ruth's origin is? She is a Moabite. Did you know that? Now, you may go, oh, yeah, I remember something about the Bible. You know, there's the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Electrolytes, and there's these, there's these ites there, you know? And you just kind of leave it in this general category of the ites, you know? But uh, actually, you need to know something. The entire Moab race, the Moabite race, was the product of 
incest. And it's chronicled in Genesis chapter 19. So he got Lot, remember? And Lot and his family are fleeing. Sodom and Gomorrah are decimated. God brings judgment to a city. And all of its wickedness and the homosexuality that is rampant is kind of the way of life. And God just says, enough is enough. I've given plenty of opportunity and they will not repent. I'm going to give you an opportunity to leave, but do not look back. Well, Lot's wife is like, "Eh, you know, God's kidding. I'm kind of curious what's going back there. She looks back and God turns her into a pillar of salt. That should have made things rather clear. I ought to follow what God says. So Lot and his two daughters are hanging out in a cave, okay? And these girls are like... You know, they're just like all the drama, like, oh, we're the only two females left, you know, we're the end of the world. And uh, we need to have the race continue. So, so I, I got this plan and the, this oldest daughter has this plan like, oh, what we'll do, we'll, we'll get our dad drunk. And on successive nights, we'll each take a turn and, and we'll have like a sexual relationship with him. And we'll continue the line on that way. Absolute wickedness. You almost feel like you need to take a shower to read it, especially after saying it. And yet, that's exactly what takes place. Two successive nights, they get their dad drunk. Lot, so foolish. Where in the world is his integrity? Where's his values? Where is he? And his daughters, my. And it says, like in Genesis 19, that both the daughters of Lot were of child with child by their father. The firstborn, uh, firstborn bore a son. And called his name Moab. And he is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son. And she called his name Ben-Ami. And he is the father of the sons of, the, of Ammon to this day. And so they have these, these kids. And do you see that? Ruth, Ruth is a Moabite. Like it says in Deuteronomy 23, there is, they are such strong standards. They can, the Moabite could never, or an Ammonite, could never be in the presence of God's people and come to the Lord of glory and be in the temple. And yet, you see amazing grace and you've got Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. You see that? And the wife of Boaz, do you know her great-grandson is David? David, that king, the king that receives this covenant. And so we see, and Obed the father of Jesse in verse 6, and Jesse was the father of David the king. We have arrived. There is David the king. But you keep going to think like, okay, so it was really bad until we got to David the king, but that's going to get a lot better, right? You don't even finish verse 6, and lo and behold, David was the father of Solomon by, okay, Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Man, I tell you what, this is another very unpretty story, okay? David, when he should have been out with all, as kings go, go to war, he's like, you know, I think I'm going to take the year off. And he's bored out of his mind. He's running around on the top of his palace while his men are fighting. And he, lo and behold, he sees this really beautiful woman bathing in her backyard. And he's like, ha, ha, I need her. His servants try to warn him, like, that's Bathsheba. Like, you got this really good guy named Uriah. He's like one of your key guys. He's out fighting for you, by the way. I want her. And he has this secret sexual relationship with her. But it doesn't stay secret for very long because Bathsheba comes up pregnant. (sighs) David's like, how could this possibly be? And you know when you're in sin, when you're doing things that are wrong, when you're not doing what you should do and you're doing the things that you shouldn't be doing, you start conniving and you become rather deceptive and all sorts of things start to make sense in a convoluted, twisted mind. And so he's got the idea like... I know, I'm going to get Uriah, I'm going to call him off the front lines, I'm going to have him hang out with me, and I'm going to send him home, and he can just hang out with his wife for a few nights, and 
It'll all be taken care of in just some natural relationships and no one will ever know. So he brings Uriah in. And Uriah, though, no matter what he tries to persuade him to do, Uriah will not go and spend the night with his wife. So he decides, like, oh, this guy, he's sleeping at my doorstep. He says because the armies of Israel are living in tents and they're fighting, I'm not going to do it. So I know what I'll do. I'll get him drunk because that's how a twisted mind works when you're in sin. Well, even getting him drunk, he will not leave and he will not spend the night with his wife. And so... He sends Uriah back to the front lines with orders. The orders that he hands to his commander that says, go and attack the front. Go up very close to the wall to the place of great danger. And when you are there, I want you to pull back. And don't tell Uriah. And let's just see what happens. And lo and behold, Uriah is killed. In effect, he was murdered. And that child that Bathsheba had, that child died. But David married Bathsheba. And they had another child. And that child, you will find there in verse 7 and 6, is Solomon. From such an unlikely marriage and such a great sin. David, when he, he was confronted by his sin by Nathan, he repented. That shows you why he's a man of God. And you can repent. Whatever bad things you've done, you're in the David category. Let me give you hope. The hope is in the genealogy. The hope is the, further, the future son of King David. It's Jesus. But he, uh, he carries on, and Solomon is born to David and Bathsheba. And we could keep going through the names, but I just want you to jump to verse 17 where it says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And then there's this other group, from David to the deportation to Babylon, another 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. There are people that are omitted they're minor characters. But in order to remember, they put them in groups of 14. But this is so powerful. I mean, the family tree is filled with Jews and Gentiles, liars, fornicators, adulterers, uh, incest, uh, people that are just cursed kings. And yet, God brings forth the Messiah through grace. I tell you, it's pretty powerful. You know how the Bible ends in Revelation 22? In verse 16 in Revelation 22, Jesus says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify you to these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. When you hear the descendant of David, does that not take on a whole new meaning? It's powerful. And Matthew declares that the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, that's not an afterthought. They were all very much part of his plan. You see, what God is saying is that my plan can't be stopped. See, I did it. I tell you, a famine in Egypt couldn't stop my plan. 400 years of slavery can't stop my plan. Egypt couldn't shackle me. The deportation and being in exile cannot stop me from accomplishing my work, my will in human history. And the genealogy of Jesus shows that. You see, the genealogy of Christ, it demonstrates the greatness of God's sovereignty it displays the depth of God's grace. And let me just give you one other thing. It distinguishes the identity of God's Savior. If you miss the genealogy, you overlook the message of God's grace. I want you to look at verse 16. Here's something that's very interesting and very different. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. You see, it's very different here. It says... Joseph, the husband of Mary. It doesn't say that Joseph was the father of Jesus. Why? Because he is not his biological father. 
legal father, but not biological father. And it says husband of Mary by whom, in the Greek, that whom is feminine. It speaks of that Jesus is from Mary in his humanity, but he is truly the son of God because he, he is the eternal son that enters into humanity. And so you find here in this genealogy of Jesus, the identity of God's savior. It's like he's the savior for all people, Jews and Gentiles, liars and truth tellers, good people and some pretty wicked people. And his name actually reveals his purpose. He is a savior. And so when you come to uh, like the genealogy and beginning also in verse 18, you see that the gospel is in utero throughout the genealogies. All of Jewish history is all just pregnant with the gospel of Jesus Christ, who he is and how he works. And so when you come to beginning in verse 18, you see the divine heredity of Jesus. And next week, we're going to look closely at it. But let me just read it to you. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. See that? Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what is spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin will be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. This Savior, he is the one who saves from sins, sins of omission and commission, the wicked, the most heinous, to all the times we try to just replace God and fill it in with uh, entertainment or, or try to find our meaning, purpose, peace, identity, security apart from him. It's all sin. But there is no sin that is outside of his reach. You see, what Christianity does is it shows that God not only embraced our pain with us, it also shows that he took our sin for us, both its penalty and he even gives us the power to overcome power that comes from being united by faith with him. So this Christmas, let me ask you, where are you going to look for a Christmas gift? Where will you look? I'll tell you where I'm looking. I'm looking underneath our family tree. I'm going to be looking to see if anybody happened to remember, give me a gift, but I'll be checking it out so far. I don't see anything there, but I, that's where I'm going to be looking. I'm going to be looking at our family tree. If you want to see the gift of God's grace in its fullness, let me tell you where you look. The family tree of Jesus. It's the power of the genealogy. You see, the genealogy of Jesus, it reveals the hope of the gospel. Just when we think that, wow, God couldn't overcome my sin, we read the genealogy and find out that he already has. Isn't that powerful? Why does God trace the lineage of Jesus Christ for this reason? Because seeing the hand of God moving in history gives us the hope of God for today. And that's what we need. Let's pray. Lord, only you could present the gospel through the genealogy and how fascinating it is. We put it under the microscope and we see you're the sovereign God of history. You're at work in this present time and all of the future is held by you and we have hope because
that you have used. And Father, for someone who has come here today who has never truly trusted in Christ, and they see the need, and they see the Savior, would they just pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from myself and my sin. And this morning, I believe and put my faith in Christ. I thank you for forgiveness of sins, and I need you to be the Lord of my life. And Lord, for all of us, help us to grow in our understanding of the grace in which we are found by you, the power of the gospel, the way that you work in human history and how you're at work even now. So we praise you and worship you this Christmas season in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, how good it is that we actually have the ability to to celebrate communion. And as the men come forward and prepare to pass out the elements, I'm going to ask that you'd simply prepare your hearts. Would you confess whatever sin that the Spirit of God brings to your mind? Would, Would you rejoice in prayer? about the greatness of your salvation, the goodness of Christ, how hope is found in trusting him. And in just a few minutes, as we think of the death of Jesus, we'll share in communion together. You don't have to be a member here, but you truly have to be a member of the body of Christ.